this week, uh, we're back in Judges. Uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, know that uh, Judges is a book that if you go to most uh, Protestant churches, you won't hear a lot about. Uh, we're not trying to be hipster here with the Bible and just do uh, the weird thing for the sake of doing the weird thing. Uh, we think that Judges really has a word for us. It's relevant for us. And, um, and what we see over and over again in the book of Judges is a cycle. And the cycle starts with rebellion. God's people rebel. Uh, God responds to their rebellion uh, by, uh, by, their, by his retribution, by his judgment upon them. And his judgment upon them is, not, uh, is, is in such a way that it's fatherly, that it's trying to bring them to repentance. It's not just condemnation for condemnation's sake. And so what he does is he sends a foreign oppressor every time in these cycles. One of the surrounding nations comes, it's more powerful than the Israelites, oppresses them to the point that they repent. That's the third part of the cycle. And when they repent, they do so usually in a pretty superficial way, but God takes it, <laughs> and God runs with it, and he sends them a rescuer. Uh, that's the last part of the cycle. And so we have found ourselves, uh, the two judges' sermons prior to this, uh, in the Gideon cycle. And Gideon, uh, you will find not some mishmash of uh, Chuck Norris and um, uh, General Patton uh, and a middle linebacker. That's not who you see. You don't have a prototypical leader here. You have a guy who is an absolute abject disaster of a leader, uh, and God uses him. He, has, he struggles with unbelief all through chapter 6, uh, and God reassures him time after time after time again. And then chapter 7, we see him uh, actually defeat the Midianites, the, their, their oppressor. Uh, and God, he starts with 32,000 soldiers, and God tells him, you have too many people. Uh, no military handbook in the history of the world has ever said you have too many soldiers, uh, but Gideon did. So why did God tell him to, to, to whittle it down? He whittled it down from 30,000 to 10,000 all the way down to 300. So he lost over 99% of his troops. Why did he do it? It's so that the, the people would know and Gideon would know that it was God who gave them the victory and not the charisma, not the gifting of Gideon. So we find ourselves in chapter 8. Uh, you, 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 when you get to the end of chapter 7, uh, you see victory has been won. The Midianites are all but, all, all but obliterated. There are a few more running around that Gideon's got to take care of in chapter 8. Uh, and that's what we'll be uh, into tonight. Uh, but really, uh, the theme of tonight's message is about the continual need for dependence, uh, the continual need for weakness, the continual need uh, to, of repentance. And we saw that with Gideon in chapter 6, or it, we see it started to happen in chapter 6, then it happens in chapter 7. He utterly has to depend on God when he only has 300 men, but he loses sight of that really quickly. So really, it's, it's about humility. And perhaps that is the greatest thing that Christians can demonstrate in our lives. Which means that the greatest vice we can demonstrate in our lives is pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says this about pride. He says, there is one vice of which no man in this world is free. I have heard people admit they are bad, temper, bad tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pretty serious, right? That's what he's saying about pride, that it is really that serious. Uh, but pride's pretty funny when you see it in Michael Scott, though. Uh, when you see it in Michael Scott of The Office, uh, he's the main character it's played by Steve Carell. And if you're familiar with the show, you either find his character to be so funny that you can't help but laugh or so awkward that you can't stand to watch the TV show. I'm in the funny category, not the awkward category. 
And his, his pride, you see, it really does reach pathological levels. And his pathological pride is termed narcissism. Uh, in fact, one can be diagnosed with this condition, not just Michael Scott, but all of us could potentially at some point in our lives be diagnosed with the Narcissistic Personality Disorder, NPD. It's in the dsm 4 If you know the dsm 4 it's, it's, it's kind of the handbook for mental health. And here's some of the symptoms that the dsm 4 gives for NPD. And think about Michael Scott when you hear these. Um, some of the symptoms are a grandiose sense of self-importance. Requiring excessive admiration. Having a sense of entitlement. Being interpersonally exploitive. Lacking empathy. Being often envious of others or believe others are envious of him or her. Doesn't that sound like Michael Scott to you? That's to him to a T. But his narcissism really does go beyond pathological levels to comedy. And that's what makes the show. But if you've ever stopped and asked this question, if you ever stopped and asked this question when you're watching it, why do I keep laughing at him? I think the answer, at least for me, is because it's true. You have to laugh in order to get out of the pressure that your own heart feels that you see that same narcissism in you. See, like Michael Scott, we all lack empathy. We all have a sense of entitlement. We all have this grandiose sense of self-importance. But the difference between Michael Scott and us is that we're able to modify our behavior to not match our heart. That's the only way, that's the only way we can make it in the world. Now, you know what happens to you when, when you're pride and you succeed, right? It gets even worse. It gets enlarged. And sometimes success is the greatest danger to our spiritual growth. Now take Gideon. He's faced these new levels of success in chapter 7 when he all but obliterates the Midianites. Then in, chapter, in Judges, uh, chapter 8, 1 through 21, the, cha- the part of the chapter before we get to what's in your bulletin, um, he continues to enjoy success as he wipes out the remainder of the Midianites. But the more success he enjoys, the less humility, the less dependence, and the less weakness we see in his life. Now let's look at verses 22 through 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his, uh, put it in his hometown in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. The word of the Lord. So what we see in our passages, we see the mistake of God's people in verse 22. We see the mistake of God's leader in verses 23 through 26. 
And then finally, we see the destruction of God's people in verses 27 and 28. So the mistake of God's people, the mistake of God's leader, and the, the destruction of all of them in verses 27 28. So first, the mistake of God's people, verse 22. Look at it. Um, you see uh, that these people are now coming to Gideon. They're saying, Gideon, we want you. We want you to be our king. See, God's people never had a king before. And Gideon seems like a good candidate to give it a go. After all, he just enjoyed these unheard of levels of success and his defeat of the Midianites. So his reputation, his followers and social media are going through the roof. His reputation is at all time high. But the people forgot. The people forgot who actually did give them victory. Remember the God who gave them victory in chapter 7? The victory was so miraculous that everyone should have seen that the victory was given by God. It was not earned by Gideon. They had so quickly forgotten the lesson of the 300. Now they're ready to trust and obey Gideon instead of trust and obey God. And isn't this the temptation of God's people throughout all generations? It's easy to mistake the gifting and the charisma of the leader as the source of their success. But the source of success is not the leader's gifting and charisma. It's the leaders being filled with God's spirit. See, the only chance of success that any of us have is God's spirit filling us to accomplish what we could not accomplish otherwise. But when success comes, the leader is tempted toward pride. And our praise of that leader isn't necessarily good for them. So what should we do? Should we play it really safe and and ignore our leader's passions, ignore their gifts, ignore their accomplishments because they're so prone to pride? Well, look at, if you uh, listen to Hebrews 13, 17. It says this, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what's the best thing we can give our leaders? It's our submission, not our praise. And right there in verse 17, there's a promise for those who follow and those who lead. The promise for those who follow is that this kind of submission is actually for your good because your soul is being watched over. My soul is being watched over as I submit to those who have been put over me. But there's a promise for the leader, too. Uh, the, the promise for the leader is that if, if their people submit to them, uh, they get to experience great joy, not narcissism. And this narrative of Gideon, it's a far cry from Hebrews 13, 17. This dynamic is not present in, 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 in Judges chapter 8. In fact, the dynamic between God's, the people that, uh, that Gideon is leading and Gideon himself, it's toxic. Yeah, they, they, they more than get along. These people worship Gideon. And that's where we see his mistake. Look how he responds, verse 23. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son uh, will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> he knows the right answer right there. But we see right away that his actions tell a very different story. There are several indications of the rest of the chapter, verses 24 through 26. Uh, you heard what happens. I won't, we won't read it again, but in 24 through 26, Gideon says, Hey, everybody, bring me your jewelry. Uh, bring me the spoils that you collected from the Midianites when you defeated them, and I'm going to make for myself an ephod. We'll get into an ephod later. 
But, the, but he, he's, he's abusing his power. He's acting like the king that they have requested. Then you, see, you would see, if we print the rest of the chapter, you see in verses 29 and 30, uh, that Gideon had uh, so many wives and so many concubines that he had 70 sons. Now, only a leader uh, who can uh, produce 70 sons, uh, the only people who did that in the ancient Near East or even today, uh, would be kings, would be those who had absolute authority, those who acted like dictators. So he says the right thing in verse 23, but he acts very differently. Then you see that one of his sons, one of his 70 sons, is called Abimelech. Abimelech means, my father is king. (laughs) So you see the distance between what he says and what he does. His answer in verse 23 really should say something like this. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, but... If you want to meet my every whim and allow me to go unquestioned, I won't stop you from doing so. See, Gideon's fallen into the trap too. He's made the mistake of believing his own press. His success led to this surging reputation, which then led to him forgetting about who he really was. Success had caused Gideon, quite frankly, to forget God's grace. He forgot that God was the one who called him in chapter 6, equipped him in chapter 6, reassured him in chapter 6 and 7, and won the battle for him in chapter 7. Completely forgot all of that. He forgot that he was uh, like a leaf shaken in the wind as he looked down on the Midianite army. He forgot that God had been so merciful to him that when he asked for signs and he was showing his unbelief that God didn't smite him, but God had mercy on him and answered his signs. He forgot that. And he began, to believe, he began to believe what the people believed. And that was that Gideon was the source of his salvation and of all the people. Don't you see this in yourself? Don't you see that you want to bask in glory? See, we were made to bask in the glory of God, but we so easily settle for the glory given from people for our achievements, for our talent, for our beauty, for our money. And this is what leads us to arrogance. And nothing is more hostile to spiritual growth than arrogance. Nothing is more obnoxious in us than our pride. But brother and sister, don't be fooled. God isn't fooled by your success, and he wants you to take on humility. John Stott, a theologian, he says this, Humility is nothing but the truth. Humility is a synonym for honesty, not hypocrisy. Humility is not an artificial pretense about myself, but an accurate assessment of myself. End quote. See, here's what the truth is for all of us, regardless of our success levels. We were all made in the image of God. We all have Adam and Eve as our spiritual ancestors, which means that we're all sinners. The reality is that our only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ. That's the reality. Regardless of your success level, that's true for all of you and for me and everybody out there. But it's so easy to forget this when we succeed. See, success isn't changing these realities. 
Your reputation might change, but the reality doesn't. So what we need is humility. Just like nothing is more obnoxious or, 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 or hostile to our spiritual growth and pride, nothing is more conducive or appropriate or attractive than humility. So if anyone ever asks you, how can I pray for you? You can always say that I would be humble. If anyone ever asks you, what are you struggling with? It is always appropriate to say pride. See, Gideon forgot all about this and said the people. And you see it really in this episode with the ephod. Gideon says he doesn't want to be king, but he asks his people to furnish him with an ephod. Uh, now, an ephod is a, is a clothing garment you probably can't find on Amazon. But what an ephod was in the Old Testament is that it was worn by priests. Uh, it's a sleeveless tunic that's worn over a priest's garments. And remember, uh, our brother here, Gideon, is not a priest, but he's assuming the position. And these, these, this tunic, this ephod, was, it's, it's made of very costly materials. It's very colorful. It's made of gold. Uh, it had gold all over it. It, had, it was made of uh, blue and purple garments. And on the front was this breastplate. And all over the breastplate uh, were stones. Actually, there were 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was this little pouch on the, dress, on the breastplate that these two things, we're not really sure what they are, but we know they're called Urim and Thummim. And Urim and Thummim, these, even though we don't know what they look like, we know what they were used for. And they were used to discover God's will in particular matters. So why would Gideon want this garment? <laughs> of all things he could ask for, why didn't he just say, I'll just take the straight cash, homie. I'm good with just the money. I'll just take, I'll just take it like that. But that wasn't his issue. Gideon's wasn't issue wasn't money. Gideon's issue was power. Because if he had an ephod, uh, then it gave him control. It gave him influence. See, what Gideon needed was to be needed. So if anybody, if anybody wanted to know what to do in any given situation, they simply had to make an appointment with Gideon. And Gideon had set up shop in his hometown with all his wives and all his concubines and all his kids wearing his ephod. People come to him and say, what does God want me to do? And Gideon had the power to tell him. And it destroyed him. And it destroyed the people. You see it in verse 27, don't you? Right there in verse 27, it says, The ephod became a snare to him and his family. Uh, you know what a snare is. A snare is, uh, is it's like a booby trap. It's something that you fall into. It's something that uh, is hidden. Uh, so when you have pride, pride is a snare. Remember what Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said at the beginning quote, he said, it's something that we are largely unconscious of. See, Gideon didn't know that this was going to, and we don't know what sna uh, being a snare necessarily looked like for Gideon. We don't know if it was psychological. We don't know if it was social. We don't know what the, what the snare, what the, what the destruction was. We just know it was a surprise to him. At some point, Gideon woke up and said, my life is destroyed. And so is his family. That's what it says in verse 27. But that's what pride does. It destroys those closest to you and it destroys you. 
But then we'll look at what the second half of the verse says. It says that the people hoard after the ephod. Now, several weeks ago, uh, towards the beginning of our series on Judges, we talked about that idolatry. Idolatry is when we worship anything besides God. And idolatry is, is something that's mainly, it's not behavioral, it's something that happens. It's our affections, it's our heart. And so when we love something before, besides God, we're married to God. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And when we worship something else, when we love something else, it's like cheating on God. It's like adultery. So idolatry and adultery really aren't that different. Idolatry is really adultery to God. And so that's why it says, hoard after the ephod. See, what the people wanted is that they had become dependent on Gideon. No longer were they content with just walking with God and obeying his word. They wanted something more. They wanted a specific word, a direct word from God and what they should do in these nitty-gritty details of their lives. So all they had to do was just go to Gideon and ask him, you've got the Urim, you've got the Thummim in, your, in, in, in the ephod. And don't you see that in yourself? Don't you see that it's, a, it's way easier uh, f- to have some kind of extraordinary experience where you can come away from it and say, the Lord told me that I should, or the Holy Spirit spoke to me telling me that, then it is, th- th- that's way easier than just relying on the rich normal means of grace that God's provided for us. But Gideon was the one with the power and the people were dependent on him. And as the chapter closes, you see that the people are, they're back in bondage. They're not in bondage to a foreign oppressor like the Midianites. They're in bondage to their delusional leader. We saw that Gideon, he was weak in chapter 6 because of his inexperience and his timidity. And then in chapter 8, we see that he's weak because of, his, because of his inflated ego and his lack of discernment. So what does this tell us? What, what are these seven verses telling us? What's chapter 8 of Judges really telling us? Well, it tells us that Gideon is a very clear negative example of biblical leadership. Gideon is not someone to hold up and say, be like Gideon. And honestly, these negative examples, they just keep coming at us. We're going to see a bunch more. We're going to see it in Abimelech, his son. Uh, His name meant my father's king. We're going to see it in Samson. We're going to see it in this weird guy named Jephthah. And none of them are any more faithful to God than Gideon. And you can continue to move throughout Old Testament history, and you see that for the most part, on the whole, the the kings of, of God's people are unfaithful. They're ungodly. Then you see that in the prophets, they are pretty godly, but their, their, their leadership is ineffective because when they call for corporate repentance, the, the God's people reject them. But right along the way, through the kings and through judges and through, and, and, and through the prophets, you get these whispers. You get these little hints given to you about a leader who's going to come. And he's not going to be filled with hubris. He's not going to be filled with the bravado of Gideon. In fact, it tells us just the opposite of what this leader is going to look like. Isaiah 53 says, There's nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him and thought he was scum. That's the leader who's going to come. Doesn't sound like Gideon, does it? 
See, Jesus is the only leader. He's the only one who is able to let the praise of men roll right off of him. He was the only one who was able to be criticized and not lash out. He's the only one who is able to deliver on all his promises. He's the only leader that you will ever have and that I will ever have that won't let us down. That's why the New Testament is able to say things about this, about the effectiveness of Jesus' leadership. 1 Peter 2, says, 2 verse 6 says this, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What could you say about Gideon? If you believed in him, would you be put to shame? Yeah. Not Jesus. 1 John 3, 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. True of Gideon? No. True of the Christian leaders you've had in the past? No. The true Jesus. John 8, 46. Jesus says this. He says, which of you convicts me of sin? Not a word he could hear. Do you say that about any of your leaders? you say that about you when you've assumed positions of leadership? Nope. See, what Jesus was able to do in his life is that he was able to maintain this utter dependence on God. And it all started in his earliest of days, and and, and it continued as he took his final breath on the cross. And he did all of this because he loved you. He knew that to maintain this kind of continual humility was the only remedy to our exile. He had to have us. And when you realize that Jesus is this kind of leader, it can save you from the cynicism that you have about other Christian leaders. Because you don't need a Christian leader to save you. You don't need a human leader to be your savior because you've placed all your eggs in the basket of the King of Kings, who's never failed. That leaves us with some practical questions. How are we supposed to succeed without becoming prideful? Isn't that what this is begging this is what I was, I was begging myself. I mean, I, I kind of did this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Stopped. Took a, you know, did the Thanksgiving thing. I would rather have been writing sermons. Um, but I, was, I, was, I found in my own self, like, how, do, how does success happen without becoming prideful? Well, I just have a few pointers here. One, have friends, not just admirers. The problem for Gideon is that he had no equals. He had no priest to administer to him the means of grace. He had no prophet to call him out. He had no king to rule over him. All he had was admirers. And his admirers sought him out and they hung on every single word. So leaders are usually lonely because leaders don't like having friends. They're usually used to, 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 to addressing people from above, not being at eye level with people. But this is what friends do. But understandably, this is hard for a leader. Because it's hard to trust other people because you're afraid they're going to rat you out. You're afraid they're going to take your position. You're afraid they're going to expose your flaws. So what do leaders usually do? What do you do when you assume a place of influence? You remain isolated. Because isolation is just easier. But isolation is the perfect soil for pride to grow. So if you're in a place of influence, you need friends. The second thing, remember your folly. What Gideon needed was a tattoo right here. It said 300. If he had a tattoo that said 300 right here, he couldn't forget that, oh yeah, 
I beat uh, the, uh, uh, the number of troops that were as many as a saint on the seashore with 300 people, none of whom had a spear a bone, or a bow and arrow. They had no weapons, and I won. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't really win. God did. And then put the date right underneath of it. That's what he needed. He needed to remember and tell everybody who came to him and for advice, hey, hey, hey I know you want me to, to speak into your life, but, but let me remind you, uh, I'm the person who needed to be reassured about 15 billion times in a couple days. After God gave me reassurance after reassurance after reassurance, I just keep needing more because I was struggling with my unbelief so bad. Are you sure you want to hear a word from me? But what do we do with our past mistakes? What do we do with the things that we're ashamed of that are in our past? We hide them. And eventually, after hiding them from everyone else, we forget about them ourselves because we would rather remember our success. That's a bad move. We need to boast in our weakness, boast in our suffering, boast even in our mistakes because they will remind you and remind others that we are a sinner in need of grace. So have friends, remember your folly, and lastly, admit you're proud. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. End quote. If that sounds scary to you, I understand. But let me remind you that Jesus has never turned away from someone who's come to him for grace. And humility is coming to Jesus with nothing in your hand except your fault. And you ask Jesus to look look beyond your faults and to see your need. Let's pray. Father, we need you to humble us. Uh, We all need a good dose of humility. Uh, Lord, we are prone to believe our own press. Um, we're prone to bask in the glory of um, others' admiration rather than your approval. And so we come to you and we ask you to forgive us. And um, Lord, I pray that, that you would mark us with humility. Lord, help us to boast in our weakness. In Christ's name, amen.